1: a special series here with myself and Matt Hansen You Can't Kill the Boogeyman a retrospective looking at the history of the Halloween franchise uh, as I said it's me and Matt Hansen Matt how you doing
0: I'm good I am so excited to do this project uh, just a little behind the scenes info John and I have been talking about this all summer pretty much since the new Halloween 2018 uh, trailer dropped and Part of the reason we're doing that is because John and I are fans of the series, and this is intended to be a countdown.
1: Yes, uh, this, this is a countdown, and it's also an examination, as many people will discover, of a deep and abiding love for a series that nevertheless has its warts, and we still find what to love about it. But at the same time, we're going to be very honest uh, when, there, when there's a misstep and when there isn't. Of course, we're here on The Nerd Party. You can go to thenerdparty.com slash contact, look up Filibuster, look up any show on the network, and you can drop a line. You can find The Nerd Party on Twitter, at Join Nerd Party, And on Facebook and Instagram, just look for The Nerd Party, and there you are. Use the tag filibuster. And you can let us know your own Halloween thoughts and memories. So we are doing a... This is this series is going to extend into other shows on the network. And we, uh, as a special treat, we are going to ap- be appearing over on Missing Frames uh, with Sean Easteridge Because he's never seen Halloween 2. So he's going to see the sequel. And he's going to see Halloween 2. And then he can do a... An honest evaluation of, uh, of comparing them and contrasting them. But today's focus, of course, is going to be on the first film of the series. Halloween, released in 1978, directed by John Carpenter, shot by Dean Cundey. And Matt, I can't imagine anybody listening to this has not seen Halloween. But if you were put in a situation where you had to give an elevator pitch non-spoiler to get somebody to see Halloween, what would it be?
0: Uh, simple, pure suspense.
1: I like it. Very, uh, very accurate actually, because that was Carpenter's intent with this film was to make something that was essentially, uh, a, an homage to Hitchcock and other films of that like, That he loved. He even named one of the characters Sam Loomis, which is a reference to Psycho.
0: And another one, Tommy Doyle, who was uh, Jimmy Stewart's friend in Rear Window. Yes. That's the name of that character.
1: That's right. That's right. So there's a lot of, um, in a sense, I think in the 1970s, you see a lot of filmmakers who are steeped in film lore and have a deep love of film. Paying tribute to that which they loved. Spielberg comes up during this time. Lucas comes up during this time. Scorsese comes up during this time. And De Palma. And Er all of these names get thrown out there regularly. When they talk about the 1970s film revolution. And quietly over here. A name that's not necessarily on the tip of the most. Most tongues. Is John Carpenter. And here's this little masterpiece hiding over there. That is essentially the same thing as what a star wars is
0: yeah absolutely for for me i mean obviously as a horror fan you you say john carpenter and i feel like i should be like on my hands and knees because (laughs) I, i i seriously like he may be the first fan like director that i became a fan of maybe him and hitchcock but like he was one where after i saw halloween i had to see his other films especially the ones that he came out in the same era so i mean right after halloween i think i saw the fog and mm. uh escape from new york and the thing and all of his like early 80s stuff because i was such so taken away with his his style of filmmaking
1: yeah and he definitely he definitely found his niche and you can see him there is a, a, a certain signature with the themes that he deals with. Um, he, well, I, I,
0: yeah, like, the, themes in the sense of like story themes, but also like. The other reason I became yeah. a fan of him is because he scores all of his own music and I tell this if there's a person that I could get to score my life, it would be John Carpenter.
1: Wow, wow. That see, I don't know if I go down that road because I, I'd like to think my life is a little less thrilling than that. No, but At <laughs> least it would
0: have some like badass synths and like oh, okay. a rock and track and
1: <laughs> That's a good like, like uh, okay, I could see some Duke of New York theme. Working there. Yeah. That, that would work. Exactly. I'm down with that. I'm down with that. Or the snake shake. Um, but, I, you know, when you come back to Halloween and and you reexamine it, I mean, we've both seen this film God knows how many times by this point. Been fans since we were, you know, young bucks, you know, could, roaming could, roaming free out there.
0: No, just just a humble brag. I could probably do the entire film's dialogue if you were sitting down to watch it.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, it, and that's that's what's so amazing about it is is its rewatchability. I think is the original Halloween sticks with everybody who sees it. The first time they see it, it is an oh wow moment, and it's amazing to me that it still manages to find that hook. And I always question. Uh, although, you know, obviously I, I think it, it deserves it, but I always wind up questioning when I rewatch it Is this just nostalgia talking to me? It is so easy nowadays to find yourself in that trap mm-hmm. of I'm rewatching this, but I have to admit that it's, oh, maybe it's not that great. I honestly can't. Th- this is one of those ones where I look back and I say, J- it doesn't matter what era this is being watched, it, It's it's pretty fantastic.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only things that you could like point at are like some of the some of the teenage dialogue is hokey, but teenage dialogue is hokey no matter what era it's in. This one that just happens to be in the 70s, so it's more that focused. I'm sure in 20 years, clueless is going to be viewed in the same way. Yeah. in yes. terms of uh, in terms of its dialogue. So, but really when it comes to the atmosphere and the suspense because I mean, yes, Halloween is is a horror film, but above all, I think it's a horror suspense film, and that part still holds up.
1: It does, and I think that also you see Halloween come to prominence in a time where people are first coming to grips with the idea of serial killers, like actually coming to grips with that concept, and so it definitely finds uh, a great niche there, and I don't know about you, but... I'm sure, as any other horror fan, you've seen Scream by Kevin Williamson. Yes. And I always go back to Halloween as my my big refutation point for the rules that they cite. Because they specifically say you can't do drugs. Yet Lori smokes weed right here yes, as they're does. driving up to the, the, the sheriff of the town. And now,
0: admittedly, she smokes weed uncomfortably, whereas the other two just down it like it's nothing. But you're right. She does smoke it.
1: Yeah. And so I've always used that as my wedge issue with uh, the, the, the rules as they laid them out. But in a sense, Halloween does establish the rules because you get so many knockoffs afterward. And... What is it you think that they never I mean an, an imitation is always an imitation and therefore sort of a, a, a shade removed. but what is it that you think really sets Halloween apart? why why has nobody ever been able to truly imitate this film and get the same vibe from it there like it, it's it's like this alchemy of why has it why has nobody ever quite figured out the recipe to this?
0: I really do think it's because, um, you know, it's it's hard to put a, a finger on, but for me, it's because this film, when you watch it now, it's not gimmicky in the slightest. Uh, a lot of what came after Halloween had some kind of gimmick to it, whether it was like a supernatural bent, and even the Halloween sequels, to a certain extent, had that too. Uh, whether it's uh, gory, whether it's... Uh, Supposed to be viewed more as kind of like a you got to be kidding sort of thing or joke. This one is just a story about some babysitters who are stalked by this person who has escaped from an insane asylum. There's no comedy. There's no like ribbing about it. There's no um, sort of uh, mythos that's put into it that comes later in the sequels. Yes, uh, but um, just for this one. It's that simple premise, and there's no, not even like the other thing too is that people may not realize, or people who haven't seen Halloween, may have this idea that this is like lumped in with some of the other horror movies of the time where it's a gore fest. This original movie, you see maybe like two or three shots of blood in the whole thing, Um, and like I said, it's it. I think the reason for that is because they wrote effective characters and they made them not gimmicky. That they're To a certain extent, they play archetypes, but they don't play, like, if it makes sense, like caricatures of those archetypes. Yeah. They do feel like real people.
1: I I think you also hit on a very important point, too, that this first one, because all the other mythology gets added from Halloween 2 forward, this first one is exactly the way that real life works with, you know, especially with a psycho killer doesn't make sense. You can't ascribe any sort of sensible motivation to it. Like, the the most prominent knockoff, obviously, is Friday the 13th. And even that, even though Mrs. Voorhees is obviously off her rocker and doing these awful things that are just absolutely unreasonably terrible, they still try to give her this somewhat almost... yeah, like Batman-y sort of thing of like, I lost my family and so I'm traumatized sort of thing. And it's like, ah.
0: Well, and the same thing kind of applies to to someone like Freddy Krueger who's going after the kids because the parents burned him up. Now, he was a bad person in real life. Yes. I mean, he's still taking his revenge for a wrong.
1: But, uh, you know, tied into it, absolutely is the fact that, especially if you look at Freddy Krueger, he becomes almost an anti-hero figure.
0: Yeah, in and, and the later sequels for sure, yeah.
1: But even in the first one, they, they mention why he was set on fire, but he still gets these gag lines that get uncomfortable laughs from the audience. And it's, it's kind of horrifying when you think about it. Like, there's absolutely no attempt in Halloween to sympathize with the killer so i th- I think you're really onto to something that that is what sets this film apart so much is there's is no effort to try to say, "Well, maybe if you just understand him, no, there's no, no understanding this that,
0: that comes later with Rob Zombie, which we'll get to. yes, oh, um,
1: will we get to that uh
0: Holy. but. But no, they dehumanize him as much as possible to where his own psychiatrist doesn't think of him as a person. Right. <laughs> I mean, and he's even he's not even credited as Michael Myers in this in the in the credits. You know, longtime fans will know he's credited as the shape.
1: Now, here's here's a question for you, though, because we're, t- we're talking about, you know, what works and everything. If you can throw yourself back first time you're watching this, what's the scene that grabbed you? Were you was it from the beginning or was it you were into it and then there was one moment where it just turned and you said this is the move like wow and you just were stuck from that moment forward.
0: I mean I do think Halloween the original Halloween has one of the best opening sequences of any horror movie that I can think of but I will say that I I was into it from the beginning and watching this you know because I watched it for the first time when I was 14 years old and that would have put me at 2003 I already knew who um, Jamie Lee Curtis was because I had obviously seen her in other films. And so it was. I was watching it, enjoying seeing where she got her start off. And we'll get into it later. I think she's a big reason why this film really works for me. But um, what really pushed this film over the edge and just... Not only made me love it, but as I mentioned on the Missing Frames episode, it made me want to seek out how this film was made. And this was the first movie that gave me the appreciation of the art of filmmaking. And it's a scene that I actually used on Twitter for when they did those like, hashtag one perfect shots yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, it's the scene where Lori after discovering her friend's body is backed up against the closet mm-hmm. and the closet's dark and the face comes up from... From, with the lighting from Dean Cundey and just that shot alone made me elevate this from like a, an excellent movie to like, this is art. This is artful.
1: I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. That, that shot still horrifies me the entire rest of the film. There's, there's even a very famous rewatch that I did uh, in the past, which was post children where I was watching it with, uh, with the missus and I, I very famously, and I, I'm still razzed about this by one of my friends. I actually got angry at the end of the movie because she left the kids to go check yeah. on her friends. I was like, "Screw that! Just call the cops. If your friends are in trouble, it's their own damn fault." And uh, you know, so like, I, I got really mad that she abandoned her her post, as it were. But even then, that shot of him coming out from the shadows. I mean, I'm afraid of dark doorways for the rest of my... I saw it for the first time when I was 10. I'm afraid of dark doorways for the rest of my life after I mean, that and
0: that, like, even watching it, I, I watched the end of it today because I was re-watching the film in anticipation of this, and I don't know how many times I've seen this film. I couldn't even count, but every time that scene gives me chills. It yeah. never fails every time I see it.
1: Yes, and I... I would say though that the moment where it really first grabbed me was I was in it like I, I agree the, the opening's fantastic but then when it goes to the Smiths Grove uh sanitarium and the you know, they're having Donald Pleasance and he's talking about it, not a person. Um I've known him longer than everybody. So why are why are you transferring him? Because the court says I have to Right. And you see him just completely at the end of his rope when they turn the corner and the lights show all of the patients walking around in their robes in the rain. Yeah. yeah. That moment I think probably glued me to my seat and I wasn't moving after that because it was hard. And then he ju- when he jumps up on the the back of the car. Yeah. And to, you know to get to a name that you mentioned, Dean Cundy, I think that Dean Cundy gets overlooked or, used to be overlooked a lot in favor of talking about John Carpenter. And I think that's another piece of the alchemy is without Kundi's visual sense, this film does not work as well. It is not you know, as thrilling. This,
0: this whole film, I really do think it, having read about it and having studied so much of it, it really was a labor of love and a team effort which is what encourages me so much about this new film because I'm getting those vibes, at least from the press material that they released. I mean, I did hear that um, Jamie Lee Curtis for this new one is only getting paid about $14,000, which, I mean, she's, she's a big star now, and she really didn't need to come back for this. In fact, she said she was done with the series a while ago, so the fact that A, she's willing to come back for this, and B, for essentially scale, she, you know, this, she got paid for H2O. She's not getting, she's emphasized that she's not getting paid, paid for this. Really makes me excited and thinks that, think that they're, they're again, doing what this film does and it's a real effort on the part of everybody.
1: Yeah. And uh, it, it is, I think also a very big deal to, you know, to get a blessing from the original creator of the series. I, 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 it's very easy to go down a rabbit hole and insist that only things blessed by the original creator of a series are therefore valid. However, I do think that that does carry a in a significant air because you know therefore that it's at least going to be in vision with what made you fall in love with it in the no, first place.
0: Yeah, not only blessed by, but he's like I'll also come back and do the score. Which is amazing.
1: I I'm get, so excited yeah. for that. I, I, uh, and, and I think, I think that's part of it too is that so many movies use a very conscious manipulation of emotion with their music. And this is manipulative in its reduction, in its simplicity. It's so straightforward and so non complex that I think it adds a whole layer about michael
0: oh my god this uh i will say i i can't remember if halloween was the film that got me into filmmaking i do know for a fact that the halloween soundtrack was the first soundtrack i actively sought out and bought at barnes and noble when (laughs) they were still like big into selling music yeah like I, i as soon as i saw it i knew i had to have that soundtrack and even carpenter credits the soundtrack more than anything he said that uh he had shown it to an executive, I think, from Fox, without the soundtrack, and it didn't work. And then, as soon as they the, he put the, the music in, he showed it to the same person, and it worked. Like I think yeah. the, the the music is a big character, especially in this first one.
1: Yeah, I uh, that theme. Um, I had friends who would uh, wait for Halloween time. And we'd go somewhere, you know, be like late or something like that, and we're driving back. Because, you know, I, I, I lived in the suburbs slash exurbs, and we'd be driving along in our our little country bumpkin roads, and it's real dark outside. And then they would turn on the Halloween music, and I was like, turn that S off right now. I will not get out of your car. You are not doing this to me. And people keep people could so easily just screw with me with the music. And that that is such... It's so, I mean, even the, the music uh, when, you know, just when they're just walking along, it's not even the stalking music. The stalking no. music's great, but just that eerie music while Laurie's walking along. Laurie's theme. Yeah. yeah
0: I, I remember specifically that Halloween, the first Halloween that I, after I saw the movie for the first time, I had gotten the soundtrack by that point, and I remember getting off the bus coming from high school, walking down my street to where my house is, and playing that theme as I was walking, just because I wanted to set the mood for yeah. the rest of the evening.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, and there's something, there's something I wonder because I live in a very warm climate now, and I think you do as well. Yes, and I there is a part of me that makes me wonder if the music and the film of course but the music itself makes me long for the fall uh in a very special way and yeah. living in a warm climate it's not quite the same because that music belongs with leaves blowing across the street and you know old elm trees and kids running around trick or treating with coats on and stuff like that and it's it's disorienting to have that experience and it's you know like 80 degrees outside at night sort yeah, of yeah
0: and plus it goes along with a lot of it goes along with the uh, darkness outside which at least for me in October it still doesn't get dark until like 730
1: yeah uh, I'm I'm a little bit closer to the equator right now and uh, than I have been before and it's still disorienting how late the sun sets it's like no go to da- stop it stop it it's fall go down Um, but I think it to be fair, you know, I mean we've seen the movie hundreds of times and I think even with revisiting say uh, a, a movie as as classic as Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade there're still cracks that show over time. So as a film fan, as a film buff, what are any moments or story beats or anything that you look at now with a little bit of detachment, you know, and and the opportunity to be immersed in the work. Is there anything where you can see the seams and you're like, ah, I bet they wish they had that back or that could have been edited together better or anything like that.
0: As far as the filmmaking goes, God, that's a hard one. Uh, uh, I guess the obvious one that I see every time is that, uh, at the beginning when Michael Myers is breaking out of the, uh, out of the insane asylum, and he smashes the window. You can see the wrench in his hand.
1: Uh, yes, um, but you could always headcan in that and say, "Well, he needed it." And so, no, but yeah, I, you know.
0: I, I get, I, given that yeah. he's they build him up as this, you know, non-human figure, I, I'm willing to bet the point was he he's so inhuman he could just smash the glass with his hand. Yeah, but they they obviously needed to have something in his hand to break it. Uh, same thing. They're just little things, like same thing with the uh the glass that Laurie breaks at the end. you could obviously see it's a different pane than, than all the yes. other glass in that door, but again, it's just one of those things where like so I mean it's, right it, it, it's very hard for me to to find technical faults with this movie now like story faults I could say like. Well, the fact that Michael Myers can drive, even though they kind of they can t- they touch upon that in the film in a very amusing way, I think. Yeah. Um, or the fact that here is this girl screaming down the street and nobody, like one person, turns on the lights to see who it is and still doesn't bother to help her.
1: <laughs> well, I, you know, I, you gotta imagine—is that a commentary? Because I can, yeah. I remember Th- that might be that might be. I I remember growing up and being told. Even if somebody tells you they need help, just tell them you're gonna call the cops. Now, again, that gets back to the area I grew up in. You know, like it, it was it was a known tactic for somebody to say they had a car accident. Can you please let me in? And it was obviously a you know, robbery. Yeah, it was it was obviously not true. But I you know, I always take that as a um just a statement of of people's distance and unwillingness to help each other. But I got to imagine somebody, even if they didn't believe she was in danger, would have but called no Was the, curious. Well, I would have imagined, uh, you know, even if, even if you're a grumpy old man like me at this point, I'm calling the cops and be like, there's some idiot kid running down the street. I want you to go scare him and, you know, get over here and, and scare them right now. Um, and so there, there's that, that aspect to it. I, I think story cracks wise, I know that I have to sort of consciously forget the fact that there are, there are some, um, inconsistencies with the order of events with certain things. Um, but not so much that it takes me out. Like I have to sit there and really think about it and be like, well, could that really happen? And so I don't, I don't really worry about it. Um, in terms of the driving thing, I agree with you. They at least acknowledge it, though. You know, how could he possibly drive? Well, he was doing a perfectly fine job last Maybe night. Someone
0: around here gave him lessons. and yeah. I mean, it makes me laugh, so I just kind of forgive it. But if you really stop to think about it, how did this, this guy who was imprisoned when he was six learn how to drive?
1: Right. So, well, that could have been... Uh, you know something i guess that you could say that halloween 666 the curse of michael myers uh stands to address um in its own clumsy sorts of ways
0: we'll get we'll get there yeah. we'll get
1: there we we will get there
0: when i when i talk about the lack of mythology i'm specifically talking about the lack <laughs> of thorn
1: yeah you know i in terms of like anything technical i think the only thing that i think is a an offshoot of the time where monitors were different and playback and stuff like that is the fact that i i know there's one shot and i i have to consciously force myself not to pay attention to it but john carpenter's cigarette smoke drifts into frame. oh
0: yeah yeah. You know what, though? I didn't even notice it was there until I listened to a commentary and John Carpenter pointed it out. Now I can't unsee it. Right. I mean, it, well, it was just it was just one of those things where like I, I I heard that that was there, but it took John Carpenter on the commentary pointing it out to me to see it.
1: Yes. And it's also it's a lot like in Return of the Jedi. There was a Matt error, not a Matt Hansen error, but a matting error with the effects. <laughs> Uh, when when the TIE Fighter attack first breaks and the Falcon flies through the cloud of TIE Fighters, and you see from the cockpit, they go through the cloud of TIE Fighters, and then it cuts to a different shot, and the Falcon roars over the camera, and you see all of the ships in the background. There was a compositing error where there were these TIE Fighters that were in the background, and then their mats were cut out, and you could see their white outlines in front of the Falcon. So yeah. like it just got composited in the wrong order. I, and I went my whole life without seeing it until the 1990s when somebody pointed it out. And I was like, I don't really see it. And then they paused the tape and pointed it out to me. And to this day, even though they fixed it in uh, the special editions, my eyes keep going to that corner of the screen. And that's like the cigarette smoke where it's like, ah, I hate that I know that
0: yeah it's just one of those weird things where like obviously that that doesn't take us out of the film, but it, like I would have never would have never noticed it, yeah, it could have gone with the rest of my life without noticing it, but yeah, now that I do know it i I always look for it in that shot,
1: yeah <laughs> now speaking speaking of something that I don't think they ever really adequately followed up on is when Michael has his mask torn off at the end, there's something wrong with his eye, and they yes. never. They never go into any detail about that. What do you they, think happened to his eye?
0: Oh, no, they go into detail about that. Lori stabs him with the hanger.
1: No, no, no. He has a... Um, he has a... Uh, uh, it, it's not bleeding and it's not a cut. There's like a deformity on his left eye.
0: Yeah, I, I took it that she she did some... That, that was from that. I always took that as that was from when she pokes him with the hanger.
1: Really? Okay. Yeah. See, I never took it as pokes him with the hanger i took because it as when, there was some sort when, of because it's thing. on the,
0: it's on the same eye where she she leans up with the hammer and he cut and he he covers that part of his face so it's the same eye so that's what it always led me to think
1: well i mean that would make sense i guess i just didn't i guess because i didn't see any blood which gets to your point about how this isn't extremely gory the effect doesn't play as an injury to me I always saw it as, it's almost like an expectation to see a deformity when the killer is unmasked. Something that we see carried forward with Jason.
0: Well, actually, I mean, when they cast it, because the guy who's unmasked as Michael at the end is not the guy who was the shape in the rest of the film. Right. But he was casted specifically for that shot because Carpenter said he wanted someone that looked angelic. Hmm. Um, And... I don't think that you would make that casting choice and then say, by the way, let's give him a deformity. I really do think that that was intended to be that's the result of the hanger. Uh,
1: you know, I accept that. All these years I've been sitting there trying to figure out what happened to him, and because I didn't see blood, I never took it as a uh, as an injury. But well, that now, makes I sense. Mean,
0: if, this movie, if this movie were shot today, you would probably see him with his eye partially gouged out, but because they right. were trying to go for the simplicity... I always took it as that was that it was, and I don't know if you know this, but there were some people who, when the new the new teaser poster for the new film came out, where it's just the mask of Michael Myers looking mm-hmm. down and worn, someone enhanced the image and lightened it up, and Michael still has something wrong with his eye. From that,
1: no kidding, I did yeah. not know that. That's amazing that they went to that level of detail. I have to really at commend. Least, that. At
0: least from the enhancement. Now it could be that people are seeing things that are just not there, but I looked at the photo that they that they enhanced. And yeah, it does look like he still got that 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 scar from his eye from when Laurie got him.
1: Well, it'll be interesting to me to see because there's so much made about the fact that he relies on the mask and the unmasking that she manages, you know, at the end of the film, stops him dead in his tracks. Right. I I am legitimately curious with this new one coming out, whether they maintain a we're-not-going-to-show-you-his-face Aspect to it.
0: I'm sure they do. Well, I mean, they might, they might, might have saved it, but the, I noticed at least when the trailer came out, they made a very conscious choice of not showing us anything but the back of him.
1: Yes, they. Yeah, they did. So, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. But you know, to that end, though, I mean, I, I'm, I'm loving having the conversation, and I always love revisiting this film. Why do you think that it is that nobody feels that everything has been said that needs to be said about this? Because there are films where, you know, we talk about them and we talk about them. And then it sort of hits a point where you're like, okay, I'm I'm kind of, can we move on sort of thing? This, in, this conversation endures, though. Do you see that as new generations of fans coming to it or is it simply the old school fans just love it that much?
0: I think it's a combination of both. I think that really what I'm really happy about this new Halloween film coming out is that as soon as the trailer dropped it kind of seemed like people's interest in in the original especially started to spike. I started to see a lot more fans, quote unquote fans you know, new fans, old fans coming out of the woodwork talking about how much they loved the old movie and how much they're looking forward to this new one because it reminds them of it. But I don't know. I just think it's the gift that keeps on giving. I it, it's it's such a simple movie, and yet it never gets old to me. Like I could I could I could write a book probably about how much I enjoy this film. But I you know it, it's it's not something that you can articulate with words. It's just something that keeps on giving whether that be the way it was made, the music, the cinematography. We haven't really talked about the cast, but the cast is what really helps sell this for me and sets it apart from a lot of its knockoffs because, I mean, there's a reason that Jamie Lee Curtis is the the screen queen, but really there's a reason why she's kind of like the OG final girl is because I don't think there's ever been... A quote-unquote final girl that's as well-rounded and as likable as Laurie Strode, at least for me.
1: No, I think that's true. I, I think that's very true, and I, I think that I think it is something that that Curtis brings to the role is uh, a maturity that Laurie needs to set her apart from her peers,
0: but also vulnerability.
1: Right. Yes. But I I find her maturity to be probably the thing that is. It's a, it's a different tactic than I think you would find nowadays because nowadays when they go to set the out the quote unquote outcast character, the person who isn't as cool as their friends, it, they're always dorky, nerdy, gimmicky. Yes whereas Lori is set apart because she's more mature than her friends. She's mm-hmm. got more of a sense of responsibility and
0: and she just happens to be also kind of shy.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: At least around like like around certain subjects, but when you see her with with, you know, with Tommy and with the kids, she's doing just fine. She's she's almost like a mother figure. She's she's interacting with them well. She's taking good care of them, yeah. keeping them entertained. Yeah. So she's not like a complete spaz and, and can't talk to anybody sort of person.
1: Right. It's not a never been kissed sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, because you, you actually get the sense with Laurie that is, uh, I guess, what makes her such an effective heroine is that is something that resonates, I think, with, with so many of us. Is it, it? And you look at so many of the, the different hero and heroine types, they're always the ones that uh have a have the ability to see the world for the responsibility that it it demands of them um and I like the fact that you, you call out how she has sort of a motherly air about her already. To the
0: point where, like you said, you had gotten frustrated when you rewatched the film and she left the kids to yeah. go see what happened to her friends. But, I mean, she is a character who, when even when she's being chased by this man, she could run down the street and be safe. But she makes the conscious choice to go back and get the kids. I mean.
1: That's true. And she does. Yeah, she goes back and she makes sure that they she, are safe. If
0: she, if she really wanted to, she could just run down the street. Because she's out of the house at that point.
1: That's true. That's very true. Uh, Wow. And and the thing is, talking about going back to the house, this film does act as a time capsule, I think, in a very large way. Yeah. Of harkening back. Well, not just no cell phones, but front doors unlocked, uh, windows left open at night. I mean, do you think that this movie winds up setting the precedent that later... You know, I i mean, I could not imagine leaving my front door unlocked intentionally you know, I for noticed, God knows how long.
0: I noticed for the first time when I was watching it today, chalk this up to like a film that still makes me notice things. When Bob gets Linda out of the truck, he doesn't close the truck door before he goes into the, the house.
1: Right. Right.
0: <laughs> I never saw that before, but I'm like, that dude just left his car door open.
1: Right. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, and it's such a... Um, What it reminds me of is I remember uh, talking with a friend who was, I I forget what he was studying in, in college or whatever, but there was apparently a, I don't know if he was really a serial killer or a spree killer or what have you, but I remember him telling me that the guy's M.O. was he would just walk around whatever part of town he was in, whether it was an apartment building or whether it was a house or whatever, and he would just try the front door. If it was unlocked, he went in and he killed. If it was locked, he moved on.
0: See, again, and I think that's why this... When you ask me why this movie works so well, it's because, and really, until the end, where, you know, Michael disappears after being shot six times, uh, all this is real, real-life believable. Yeah. I mean, and that's what makes it frightening. Like you could actually... Like you said... There is a person who just, you know, will kill you just because your door happens to be unlocked. And in this film, he just happens to go after Lori because she saw he saw her dropping off the key. We don't know about the sister thing yet, but that's, you know.
1: Well, and and her friend, you know. Maybe don't, at him. Yeah, maybe don't yell at somebody who's driving by in a car. Maybe take a note of the license plate and tell the cop about it. You know, like.
0: <laughs> by the way, talk about a moment that did send chills up my spine oh, yeah. the first time I saw it, when she says speed kills, and then he stops the car, and yeah. then you don't know what's what he's going to do, yeah. and then he just drives off. Uh,
1: you know, a uh, funny side note about that car is I happen to know the model is uh, the Ford LTD station wagon from the late 70s, and the reason I know that is because I had a friend who uh, had one? Um, oh,
0: we uh, my my parents had the '80s model when I was a very very little kid. But yeah, it was an yeah. LTD.
1: Yeah, but but my 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 friend uh, had had one. We called it the War Wagon because it was it was indestructible. Uh, he literally spun it 180 degrees on the ice one time, took out a street sign, removed his fender, hammered out the dent, and put the fender back on. And uh, I I remember one time watching it, it was the first time revisiting it, uh, you know, after he had the car and everything, and we saw it, and we were like, oh my god, he's unstoppable, do you see the car that he has? And so, nowadays, when I watch the, the, uh, the movie, I still get a chuckle out of that. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know. I honestly I don't know how he got to Haddonfield because those things got like ten miles a gallon. So how many times did he fill up and did he have the mask every time? So
0: well, no, obviously he didn't have the mask because he cause he doesn't get the mask until he breaks into the right. store that her dad is investigating. Right. So so I, he, theoretically he's doing the whole drive to Haddonfield unmasked.
1: But I, I guess he stole all the cash from the uh, from for, from the guy. Uh,
0: from the garage guy, yeah that's, from what, the that's how you can explain it. is like the guy that he killed his jumpsuit, he also, also happened to t- take his wallet.
1: And you know what, that whole reveal of the murder of the garage guy and how he gets the jumpsuit is so magnificently well done because it's such a measure of restraint and also making the paying off something that the audience doesn't know why they're shown that book of matches earlier. Right, right, and you sort of forget about it, and then you see it, and I think that Carpenter does a really good job of letting the audience feel like they figured something out. Well, you know what that, them.
0: you know what that does too, is like they he does that again when there's the scene early on where Loomis discovers that uh, Judith Myers Mar- gravestone is missing, and then you don't hear about it for the rest of the movie, and then at the very end when she's discovering the bodies, there's Annie laying and there's the gravestone. Yes sitting there
1: yeah which is that oh geez that that shot i think is undoubtedly something that scarred the hell out of me and it's in such quick succession before you know the, the shot we talked about before about him being revealed in the right. lighting coming but out from you, the dark you room. the
0: first time and it's like what the hell did he take the grave thing for and then you you see it and right it's if you were paying attention then it pays off
1: yeah boy does it pay off Oh, my gosh! does it pay off and the th- and the thing is it what's great is there are even moments of lightness and humor that aren't hokey the way movies are now, especially horror movies and you know you had mentioned that earlier one of the scenes that I absolutely adore uh in in this film is when the kids come up and they're daring each other to go up to the Myers house. (laughs)
0: That makes me laugh every single time. Hey,
1: you kids! Like, it's... Hey, Hey, Lonnie,
0: get your ass away from there. Yeah,
1: yes, exactly. (laughs) And it it is... uh, um, I don't know. It's it's really, I I think, just such a gem of a film. Like, it's one of those things where when you go back and you revisit a film like this, you don't want to give it I know that my impulse is I want to find any reason not to give it a perfect rating, because people just chalk it up as oh, that's nostalgia. I I have to give this a perfect rating though. Yes, and do, would you see any any reason why somebody would watch this film and walk away from it and be like, yeah, okay?
0: Well, I could see that, like, from a modern perspective that, you know, it's a horror movie, but it's it's pretty tame. It's kind of, you know, old-fashioned. I mean, I guess you could say that it's – really, the killing doesn't happen until we're more than halfway through the film, uh, the the killing of the main characters. Yeah. Uh, so people could say that, I guess, the pacing's slow, but I don't know. First of all, I grew up with films from the 70s, so, like, I'm used to that kind of suspense building. Uh, but I, 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 I have to, for me, this is the perfect horror movie. This is my favorite horror movie. And may you know, I would even go as far as to say maybe my favorite movie of all time.
1: It's definitely in the conversation. Uh, it, it is definitely, if you know, uh, you remember desert Island discs. Yeah. This is on the list. Yeah. If oh, you're going sure. to, if you're going to strand me somewhere, I got to have this movie with me. Me too. Yeah. And uh, it's even interesting because you mentioned the films of the 70s and, you know, we talked about other horror stuff. It is such a measure of incredible restraint because Texas Chainsaw Massacre had already happened. And you look at the different, the completely different approach of both of those films, both great in their own right. But it would be such a fascinating double feature. I think to Well Texas play Chainsaw these has
0: like this air of exploitativeness to it. Yeah. Whereas this one is much more restrained and uh I don't know man, like I I I get that impulse of always wanting to temper your your love for something just to like not overdo it, but I am physically incapable of doing that for this film. I and I'm unapologetic about how much I love it. Will always love it. And um, like I said, it really got me into just the the art and the decisions that go behind filmmaking because, you know, as fans well know, they only made this movie for $325,000 over the course of 20 days. Um, Amazing. And what they were able to do with such limited resources and the end product, I will never stop being amazed, ever.
1: Uh, You know what? I think that is a great note to uh leave it out on and uh let everybody know that this is just the first in the series here on filibuster and uh if every everybody wants to get in touch with you matt and uh and chat about their own love for the shape uh where can they find you
0: they can find me on twitter at m hansen 0207 h-a-n s-e-n going to be talking so much more halloween stuff as we count down to this new film
1: Absolutely. And you can find me out there. uh, I am Kessel Junkie out there on Twitter. And you can find me here uh, on the network right now, regularly, on aggressive negotiations uh, with Matt Rushing. So, with all of that said, lock your doors.